0: This episode is brought to you in part by B&H Publishing Group. Sam Albury's new kids book, God's Go-Togethers, provides a helpful foundation for explaining why God made men and women as a special pair to complement each other in marriage and beyond. Learn more at godsgotogethers.com. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan.
1: And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, I have a sneaking suspicion you might just be the villain of what? this week's episode.
0: Little old me, what could I... How, how do you figure that? I am just as nice as can possibly be.
1: I mean, well, for one... Your man,
0: okay, which is going to be a That's bit of a true, problem. True, please uh, continue. Given
1: the subject matter of one of our movies, and two, you also made me watch a Charlie Kaufman movie.
0: Oh, I already see where this episode is going, <laughs> yeah. listeners. We are going to be giving you an episode about the manifold sins of man. Yes, men specifically are review of Alex Garland's new horror film, Men, is coming up in the first segment.
1: And in the second segment, uh, we engage with horrors of another sort. Uh, Anomalisa, Charlie Kaufman's 2015 movie, deals with the psyche of a man who is having a very difficult time relating with anybody.
0: Yeah, it's not a great time to have a Y chromosome, but, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll keep on trucking on episode 336 of Seeing and Believing. Hello. Hi. Mrs. Marlowe, yes? Harper, yes. Do, come in. The words I have to say. It's a beautiful be simple, house. But
1: Will it just be you staying, or. Excuse me? Mrs. Marlowe?
0: No. Until you give your love, there's nothing more that we can do.
1: Apple from the garden? Y-
0: yeah, it was delicious.
1: No, 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 no. Mustn't do that. Forbidden fruit.
0: Oh. God, sorry, I... I, I I'm joking. I, 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 oh. Uh. We're here on episode 336 of Seeing and Believing, and I, you know, I'm clean-shaven, unfortunately. Or, you know, I just have stubble. I don't have a mustache to twirl, mm. in other words, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate given that, you know, this is all about men being either villainous or dysfunctional or both. Um, I mean,
1: you could shave into, like, the evil Spock beard if you really felt, like, playing the part.
0: I... <laughs> I, I could be the your evil mirror universe version of myself. Mm-hmm. I did not come prepared, uh, is is what I'm trying to say. So, oh no, sorry, sorry to you and to the listeners. Uh, we've so we've got quite a uh, an episode ahead. Uh, Anomalisa is you know the the crowd pleaser that's going to be in the watch list segment. Um,
1: crowd pleaser is a, is a strong word for it, I think. <laughs> Just go
0: with me. Okay. Uh, um, no, it's 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 definitely not. Um, but you know, before we get to you know the you know the frothy delights of <laughs> a Charlie Kaufman movie, uh, we're we're going to you know kind of start off with something a little bit more somber, a mm. little bit more restrained. Uh, that's not right. Quite the right word, but. We'll get into that, I'm sure. They
1: all defy description, absolutely.
0: Yeah, well, I'm going to attempt to describe this first movie now. Uh, That would be Alex Garland's new horror film from A24 titled Men. And here's the film's official synopsis. In the aftermath of a personal tragedy, a woman named Harper, played by Jessie Buckley, retreats alone to the beautiful English countryside, hoping to have found a place to heal but something or someone from the surrounding woods appears to be stalking her. What begins as simmering dread becomes a fully formed nightmare and Harper is confronted with a phantasmagorical manifestation of human evil. That's as old as the human race itself brought to you by the group that's named in the film's one word title. (laughs) So Sarah, this is the sort of movie that I mean, just once you know kind of the basics of what, goes on in it it's obvious that this is the sort of movie that is destined to be divisive mm-hmm. and also to invite many varying interpretations or at least maybe invite the audience to come up with lots of crackpot interpretations <laughs> um so that might be as good a place to jump in as any When it comes to men, what are your uh, quote-unquote crackpot interpretations, and what do you think of it as a whole?
1: I mean, I have a lot of crackpot interpretations about, like, men, the gender, honestly. Uh, Namely, are they okay? (laughs) And I think that that's probably, like, I don't know, a surface level read of Alex Garland's men as well. I feel like we're kind of at a bit of an advantage here because the discourse has already sort of started to happen um, around this movie. And You're right that it's divisive and I am probably about as surprised as anybody to say that I'm probably on the more positive end of that, Um, which is not where I expected to be even as the credits rolled. So I did not have a particularly fun time watching this movie. This is not like fun horror um, where you're getting like an adrenaline rush and a bit of a thrill and like you're enjoying just sort of that pure fear and then catharsis and release like there's no catharsis here whatsoever and i think that that's kind of the point is that level of dissatisfaction uh that alex garland leaves you with so my my read or my probably crackpot read um on this particular movie is that Um, Alex Garland is interested in the question of original sin, but rather than positing that patriarchy is something that comes from that original sin, I think he's saying that patriarchy is the original sin and that our main character, Harper, played beautifully by Jesse Buckley, um, has to contend with that as sort of an Eve figure in what was once a lush and green garden that is turning into... um, a more horrifying location, so that's that, that's kind of my read on it. Um, I'm curious to know where you landed.
0: So I I think that we, it's interestingly we are probably almost exact mirror opposites of each other in terms of our reactions to this movie. I went in really excited about it, um, and despite the the negative, uh, you know the the mixed to negative reviews that I'd been. Reading before going, I was still I was still optimistic. Like I I I liked the Lighthouse, you know, Robert Eggers' film, and that was another one where it's just kind of kind of crazy, and some people really didn't like it, and some people got on board with it. Mm-hmm. I was on board with it, and I was really hoping to be on board with this film as well. And I found myself I don't know, just dis- disappointed. Mm. Is is probably a good place to start with with that.
1: I'm curious to know like what the thing was that most disappointed you. Uh
0: well yeah, well, okay, well let's let's jump into that because I think that might be a way to dig a little bit more deeply into the specifics of of what you find this movie to be saying about mm-hmm. about uh the patriarchy and the the religious uh, or at least spiritual undertones of it. Mm. Um I think what was disappointing to me about it is I I was really hoping for the phantasmagorical, the that word that I that was in the plot synopsis. I was really hoping for it to go all in. I was kind of um expecting it to be I don't know, maybe a, along the lines of a David Lynch film or maybe mm-hmm. at least uh you know, Alex Garland's own Annihilation where mm-hmm. there's a lot of suggestiveness In the horror where there's a lot that isn't explained, but there's still kind of this uh, totemic sort of vibes behind it (laughs) that that would just allow you to uh, feel with the movie, even if you didn't necessarily couldn't enumerate what the movie is point is. Mm. And. I was disappointed in men because it seemed like it kind of wanted to have it both ways. It wanted to be very, you know, Lynchian to sort of have things follow this sort of dream logic, um, or nightmare logic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, it was, I guess it was disappointingly literalistic in places that made it as the film went on progressively less and less interesting for me to, uh, unpack what it was doing. Cause I feel like even if, I don't, you know, have a checklist of what represents what mm-hmm. <laughs> in this film. I feel like I could do that if I wanted to, you know, buckle down and, and apply myself. I just don't think that the movie has the sort of power to it that makes me interested in doing that.
1: Hmm, interesting, because I feel like I've almost tried to do the checklist of one-to-one, and I haven't been able to quite get there, except for, like, with the main thread of that, patriarchy equals original sin piece there so we'll avoid like a lot of the plot specifics and especially the specifics of uh, a truly bonkers um third act um which is something that i i don't know like that felt kind of phantasmagorical to me potentially i i I know i said we weren't going to get into it but also well so
0: it it it's it's very outre I guess like yeah. there's uh you know if you've seen the thing mm-hmm. then you're primed for the sorts of imagery and and horrific uh events that occur kind of in the, in this film's final sequence mm-hmm. um but i didn't i I felt that it was kind of one note in that kind in that sort of grotesquery it it was definitely gross. Okay. I don't think it was gross in an interesting way though.
1: Interesting. <laughs> I
0: I I think there there's a, a, a close up of a of a certain <laughs> I again, dancing around for both spoiler reasons and because this is a family show <laughs> reasons. Yeah. There's a close up of a certain event or occurrence in this film's climax that is very gross and is very uh, thematically in line with what Garland is trying to say here. Mm-hmm. And he returns that that same occurrence uh, pops up uh, again mm-hmm. and then it pops up again. And every time we're treated to that close up and it's every bit as gross the second and third times, but it doesn't elaborate on the thematic thrust of the image in a way that in any sort of way that I found compelling. So it, it it weirdly, even though it is kind of bonkers and self-consciously so, it kind of got monotonous for me.
1: Hmm. Um. Did you get that feeling throughout the rest of the film? Because I feel like there are bits and pieces where if I tried to map out one-to-one, like this is what's going on in, I don't know, Genesis 2 and 3 in particular, like there's a very strong Garden of Eden fall of humankind kind of bent to this movie. And there are bits and pieces where it's very clearly signaling, oh, yes, this is what's going on. Harper takes an apple from the garden, eats it, and then somebody else tells her, oh, no, you, you shouldn't do that. Like That's forbidden fruit. And then he elaborates that it's a joke. Um, but there are other elements to this story where I was a little bit baffled about their inclusion. And I think that I don't know if it's necessarily adding additional depth or complexity, but I think that it is trying to be a little bit more slippery about that one-to-one kind of mapping from this movie to a biblical story um, I'm thinking in particular of some of the carvings that show up in the church that Harper visits in the village nearby um, on the baptismal font on one side there is uh, the figure of the green man which is um, kind of a folk carving that shows up in English um, churches in particular and we don't really know like what the purpose of this carving is he just seems to be like a, a proto man out there and then on the other side there's also a she-lin-a-gig, which is another um Figure that shows up in a lot of church carvings. And we don't really necessarily know what she represents either other than femininity. Um, And I think that the movie returns to these again and again in kind of an interesting way. And I couldn't fully put like my finger on like this isn't really an Adam and Eve story necessarily. It's more of a story of... This is the problem of original sin, and then this is how we're going to explore that problem. But we're not going to necessarily map individual characters to those figures, if that makes sense. So I don't know if you got that sense or I'm, not.
0: I mean, there's definitely a lot of. I, I mean, it's this might be a mean way to put it. There's definitely a lot of faffing about with <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> with, with that kind of imagery, where it's mm-hmm. you know it's it's very um, you know it's not explained and it's sort of a head scratcher and the editing is definitely designed to keep the audience on its toes and, and sort of uh, invite us to think about uh, the links between these images that are cross cut with the more literal tribulations that Harper is going through over the course of the film. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think (laughs) there wasn't anything in there that, compelled me to look closer, I guess. It's a lot like Mother in that it very intentionally draws on, you know, biblical and especially Old Testament uh, accounts of humanity Mm -hmm. and uh, our relationship to creation and maybe even a creator. Um, There's definitely very intentional work done by Aronofsky in that film to Make us invite us into really unpacking it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and even when we there's lots of crazy stuff going on, um, it's not just there for shock value. It's there to to have a meaning. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that's true of, of Garland's film as well. But where Mother, I felt like had a very specific, like it, it had interesting things to say, I guess, about God and man. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that Men has similarly interesting things to say about the patriarchy other than that the patriarchy really sucks hmm. which is true mm-hmm. um and it's interesting as far as it goes that it posits kind of this link between patriarchy and original sin mm-hmm. but i don't it it kind of it has that idea but i don't feel like it, it embroiders it in any particularly compelling way for me at least but i interested. i want i want to hear you talk about it more because you had a really good essay in your Newsletter, mm-hmm. which I read, and I appreciated thank you I wasn't convinced by it, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I don't know maybe maybe you'll you'll convince me now or yeah, you'll I, convince some of our listeners
1: I mean, I certainly hope so. <laughs> um, it's interesting that you bring up Mother because I feel like Mother was a movie that I actually like actively enjoyed watching, which is probably a very weird thing to say, but like I actually actively enjoyed watching that one because I figured out what Aronofsky was up to with his story and with the parallels that he was drawing with the story of the old testament and then later on the new testament a little bit as well with men i think i was baffled and i think what you've described as kind of like faffing about i i feel like is almost more of an in an invitation to contemplate the state of the world and the nature of things so there's a lot of like Long, slow shots of the carvings in the church and of the leaves on the trees and of a dead deer sort of decomposing, where like the camera slowly moves into its eye and then back out again. Um, And it's moved along a little bit, I guess, in the world. And at the same time, it's kind of unchanged. It's just kind of sitting there dead and nothing really like of substance has changed. Um, And I think that that's the thing where I think that men is both successful. And also it falls a little bit short for me. And it's that men has this thesis about men bad, patriarchy bad, maybe not necessarily like men men bad, but definitely patriarchy bad. And also here's how this whole situation might have come about. Now let's sit and contemplate that. Part of me wishes that he had, like, a little bit more of a point to make with that beyond just, here's my thesis and now let's think about this for a little while. And at the same time, I think I would have been really frustrated if his film had been an attempt to solve the problem of patriarchy, as though, like, anybody else would have been able to do that in the last, like, however many thousands of years that it's exists. I like I don't know. I, I'm i frustrated by this movie and I think I'm captivated by it. And I think I, I lean more on the positive side of that's an interesting problem. And I appreciate that I'm being invited to comp- contemplate it through Alex Garland's eyes. And while I wish that there was a little bit more of a point to it. I also appreciate that it 's not didactic about where do we go from here, because I think that I would have chafed at completely mm-hmm. and totally if if some guy had decided to make a movie that said here 's how you get out of this problem
0: well, yeah, we can definitely agree on on that point I think where 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 i 'm kind of just chafing under this movie myself <laughs> is that i i just don't i don't think any of the the images that garland chooses to explore this this theme this topic Hmm. are are sticky in in a way they they seem like there's there's individually striking sequences you know there's that uh the sequence where harper she um wanders uh through a ravine and uh finds an old abandoned train tunnel mm-hmm. and she walks you know part of the way in there and she's sort of playing with her own echo you know, mm-hmm. like kind of almost singing with herself mm-hmm. and uh and then at the at the end of uh her uh self duet uh there's a figure that stands up at the other end of the of the Tunnel and begins running towards her
1: and screams and usually. screams
0: she's essentially awakened something mm-hmm. and that is it's such a a fantastic sequence and this was early enough in the film that I was still very much on board and I was like thinking, oh this is this is really confidently filmed this is confidently filmed it's uh an interesting hook. Where does the movie go from here? And to my disappointment the the film doesn't really go much of anywhere. It, mm-hmm. I, I I was hoping for something like, I don't know, you, you think of something like David Lynch's Eraserhead, where every single sequence is very strange and indelible, but in a completely new way. You know, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily, you don't, you can't rationally <laughs> draw a link between from, the from one scene necessarily to the next. Other than that, there's this just generalized anxiety mm. that Lynch. He doesn't just you know show the characters being anxious. He makes the audience feel anxious, mm. and I think men. The second part of that equation is where men falls down. He's uh, Garland is very good at putting Harper through the ringer mm-hmm. and can maybe creating some individually tense sequences, but there's not really that atmosphere. Mm. that i wanted there's not really any any sort of image that is just so strange that it sticks in my mind nothing like the um the uh the people who have turned into into flowering trees of of annihilation Mm -hmm. or the the winky's diner sequence from mulholland's drive just something where it there's no particularly rational reason why it's so sticky Mm. (laughs) but you just, you can't stop thinking about it once you've seen it. And it moments like that kind of cast their shadow over the entire film. And I just, men just doesn't cast a shadow for me.
1: It's interesting because I think the shadow that's cast the most is that tunnel sequence that you mentioned. Like for me specifically, like that was the moment where I started to actually feel a lot of that anxiety even before she started to enter the tunnel and start singing with herself and, and harmonizing with herself. And I can't necessarily tell you exactly why other than like it felt like just a single camera push. It's probably the shot where she just first starts to enter the tunnel and the camera pushes in and pushes in and you can't see the walls of the tunnel anymore. It's just the figure of Harper standing there and there's nothing else but blackness around her. And she's not aware of that darkness yet. Hmm. But we know that it's there and we know what's coming just by nature of the genre of the movie that we're all watching. And I think that that sense of anxiety kind of spread itself throughout the rest of the movie for me. Um, There are a couple of sequences and yeah, they do feel a little bit disjointed. Like I will, I will grant that, but there are a few sequences where Harper doesn't know that she is necessarily in danger and we don't know that she's actually in danger, but there's still that sense of there's someone coming out of the woods for you. And maybe he doesn't know that he's coming out of the woods for you either, but he's here and he's at your house and he's exploring your grounds. And that level of kind of a nameless, like, I don't know, proto horror really got me. Um, there's there's a couple of sequences where she's just walking around um, on the phone with a friend and you can see someone in the background, like through the windows in the cottage that she's in. And... Um, it's the kind of thing that makes me want to just, like, go around closing all of the curtains whenever <laughs> I'm home alone. Um, so sequences like that were the ones where I, I truly did feel seen and understood in this particular movie in a way that didn't feel fully literal, but close enough that it got pretty close to home. I I mean, that's
0: partly what is so frustrating to me about this movie is I think Garland's very talented director the the way that he uh, frames these shots the the way that he conceives of these sequences, where even if there 's nothing out those windows there's so many shots where Harper is sitting down with her her back to a bank of windows mm-hmm. and you 're not sure whats you know what 's in the darkness outside is something watching her through those windows you don 't know, and that 's really wonderful horror filmmaking. But I think that I almost it either needs to be, you know, to fully embrace kind of that that thrill ride mentality of we are just here to, you know, be scared for Harper Mm -hmm. or it really need to um, be a lot more interested in. Creating. spiritual dread to go along with the physical fear, I guess. Like, I'm I'm just... There's something there where Garland is sort of... He's caught between two stools where he's very good at evoking certain anxieties in individual sequences, but there's nothing that coheres them all together in a single uh, unified product, uh, at, at least for me.
1: Rory Kinnear didn't do it for you? Sorry, what? Rory Kinnear didn't do it for you?
0: I mean... So Rory Kinnear, he gives his all in this movie, and I mean, he gives his all. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I, it, it doesn't give me any pleasure to say that, you know, for for somebody as you know, game and and uh, as Kinnear is in this film, I I feel like the the conceit of having him essentially play every single uh, male role in this film it by the end it feels a little gimmicky to me hmm. and that makes me sad because kinir i think gives a an incredible you know his performances in this film are really great he plays kind of this plummy you know country landlord mm-hmm. uh he's got sort of this this very cold policeman he's got the you know the 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 stalker who follows Harper out of the woods. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of these things. He's the, the, um, the Anglican priest who is, you know, disturbing in a whole different way. He, every single one of them, he changes his voice, his posture, everything about the performance is different and it's really impressive. But in the end, I don't know that it does. I, I don't know that film really explores what's interesting about that? Because there's something interesting about it. Mm -hmm. I don't think the film really succeeds in explicating it for us.
1: I wonder if it's because Harper never seems to register that all of the men around here look the same.
0: Yeah, it's unclear whether this is – is this dream logic or where she notices it but it doesn't faze her? Or is this something that she doesn't notice? Mm -hmm. Or is this something that she does notice and it's scaring her but she's not letting it show? It's ambiguous, but in an unhelpful way.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that, one, it is literally happening, and two, it's also a metaphor for, like, all of these guys are every man. It's just that they all inhabit completely different roles. And they inhabit roles where every single one of these men is going to behave the same way that all of these other men do, but they also are not going to because they're still individuals. They just happen to be men living under patriarchy who don't believe this particular woman. And because she is not of them, she is also therefore kind of a threat that needs to be taken out. Um, and that's kind of where a lot of the dread comes from me is where the dread comes from for me is that she is stuck in this situation where every man is both literally completely different and also literally exactly the same. And they're going to essentially sort of all turn into each other and they're going to like all, all of these, all of these characters just sort of um, the, the word I keep wanting to use is like they kind of melt into each other at a certain point. Like Rory Kinnear's performance almost seems like it's coming towards a point towards her. In particular, and I think the read that I most got from this was that patriarchy is something that is going to perpetuate itself and that is going to protect itself because that's what power does is it perpetuates itself and it protects itself And I think that in and of itself is much more scary than any heart like bodily harm that you can do to a person because you can trap them in a situation that they are never going to be able to get out of. And even if they are able to recognize the situation that they are in, they're still stuck there unless they can figure out some way to get out. And in Harper's case, like she's not able to necessarily get out. And I don't I don't know if. Alex Garland certainly doesn't seem to have like an idea about whether or not we can get out of patriarchy. But I think that leads us right back to the beginning. Well,
0: and I think this is where your read on patriarchy equating to original sin is is really compelling. Mm -hmm. And what makes me wish that honestly, I I could get on board with everything else about the film, because I think that's kind of the key to reading this film is that it's not so much that, you know, Harper's the you know, our our heroine and all of these other men are just, you know, monsters to be slain. Mm-hmm. There's something uh in, in the film's final sequence, there's something deeply pathetic about these men too. They're caught in a cycle of of birth and death, mm-hmm. and it's deeply miserable for them mm-hmm. as it is grotesque and horrifying to her. Mm-hmm. And the th- when she finally gets the chance to Uh, sit down and essentially ask one of these manifestations what he wants from her the the answer is simply uh
1: for you to love me
0: yeah he 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 wants love and that's like that's an expression of a very human spiritual uh hunger Mm -hmm. right um uh intimacy connection love um if not with a creator then at least with with our fellow humans Mm -hmm. um and of course the way it's uh expressed in patriarchy is obviously very toxic yes so i really like that read i really wish that garland had found a more compelling way to uh embody it on screen Mm -hmm. i guess i i can't take that final step where i agree that it's an effective portrayal of these ideas Mm -hmm. just that I give Garland some credit for at least having those ideas kicking around somewhere in here.
1: This feels like the battle of the sexes continues once again <laughs> with our conversation as well.
0: You know, it it, it seems uh, thematically appropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh, listeners, you can judge for yourselves uh, if, if we were successful at embodying that dynamic. We're also really interested in knowing your thoughts about uh, men itself. If you've had a chance to see this film, there's obviously... A lot to dig into about it and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of idiosyncrasies to have idiosyncratic reactions about. So uh, let us know your thoughts. If you had a chance to see it, you can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at com or tweet us at Pod. This is definitely a film that feels like it was made for film Twitter discourse in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Which... Uh, you know, might be another reason why I'm a little bit down on it. But in any case, it does make good for for great Twitter conversation. Uh, so hit us up on Twitter and let us know your thoughts on there as well. Mm-hmm. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So listeners, this is the part of the show after we spent a, a first segment just arguing with each other, mm-hmm. uh, where we typically, you know, read out some of the f- the feedback that we get where you argue with us or maybe agree with us. We, we tend to like both, but for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's one of the things we really like is, uh, keeping that conversation going. Uh, so we don't have anything to share this week, but we definitely want to extend that invitation as always. And and I'm to be honest, Sarah, I'm really hoping that lots of people did see men and want to tell us exactly where we're wrong or maybe where I'm wrong for, (laughs) for not, uh, fully appreciating the brilliance of the original sin reading. Yeah. Um, but you know, I don't know, hopefully it'll happen.
1: Yeah, everybody um, write in if you think that Kevin is wrong. And if you think that I'm wrong, um, maybe write in about something else potentially. No,
0: that, well, <laughs> uh, see, this is this is the sort of friction that comes about because of the fall and just fallen human <laughs> nature. You, you're, it will, you're, I will not stand for it. <laughs> this, this is the kind of... Uh, post-lapsarian friction, up with which I will not put. Um, But (laughs) as you can see, listeners, we're still sort of at loggerheads about men. And I don't think that that atmosphere is going to go away anytime soon. Mm -mm. Coming up is our watch list segment. We're going to talk,
1: talk, hopefully. Probably argue.
0: Argue about Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson's Anomalisa. That's coming right up.
1: We're going to go to the watch list, which is the segment where one host recommends a movie that the other host hasn't seen. Usually they're pretty thematically tied with whatever new release it is that we're discussing. So in this case, Kevin picked a movie in which just about everybody is also played by the same man. Kind of rhymes with with men and Rory Kinnear, Um, but in this case, um, all men are played by Tom Noonan. (laughs) Not just all men, all people. That's true. Yes, you're right. Thank you for correcting me. All people, except for two, crucially, are played by Tom Noonan. um, Listeners, we are going to be talking about Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson's movie Anomalisa from 2015. Michael Stone, who is played by David Thewlis, not Tom Noonan, is a customer service expert um, who is due to speak at a conference but who can't seem to be necessarily inspired to talk about the thing that he is most um has the most expertise in i guess we should say um he's really not inspired by really anybody or anyone to be clear he he seems to be very bored with his lot in life and with everybody else they all look and sound the same largely because they have the same facial fe- features and are also voiced by Tom Noonan. We're going to keep coming back to that piece because I, I do appreciate that that piece quite a lot. <laughs> that being said, his boredom is shattered when he hears the unique voice of Lisa, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, who he meets at a conference and who he thinks just might rearrange his life for the better. So, Kevin, I'm curious to know. I mean, I know that you, you picked this movie because it has a lot to do with... Um, the specific viewpoint of a very specific man i think and also there's an actor who plays like multiple individual roles but i'm I'm also curious to know because this is a very like visually striking movie um it's done in stop motion um was there any piece of this that stood out to you from michael's I don't know assumed boredom like was was there anything in there that kind of broke you out of that shell because frankly, I'm kind of having a hard time coming out of that piece <laughs> <laughs> uh
0: I mean, this is a this is a film that is in a lot of ways you know as Kauf, Charlie Kaufman as it's possible to get just the the common Kaufman themes of sort of being trapped within your own. Neuroses um of being unable to truly have healthy connections with other people—that's all here and taken to the nth degree. And I think the production design and the am- animation are sort of perfectly suited for it because it is—it it allows Kaufman to control the visuals of the film to such a degree that the what we see on screen is very much uh, a manifestation of the <laughs> psychic state of Michael Stone mm-hmm. himself. I, you know, this, this is a film like there are, I mean, there are lots of films that have done very well at situating the audience very squarely in the viewpoint of of a main character i think this one is exceptionally successful at it Mm -hmm. um and a lot of it has to do with the the fact you know there's kind of this it's a very beige movie Mm. the you know um all the characters uh obviously look the same they all kind of have this very bland mannequin like uh you know very white features um and that makes the moments where there are kind of flashes of of beauty uh, all that more all, all that much more striking mm-hmm. so, and i think watching it this time i found that in the eyes of these mm-hmm. stop motion puppets so they're you know they're all they're they're kind of felt they all have very bland features and yet um I'm not quite sure how they did it, but Duke Johnson and Kaufman succeed at really making Michael's eyes Mm. expressive. These aren't just the eyes of a puppet. They seem like the eyes of a person. Mm. And what would be more appropriate for a story like this than to give the audience the impression of a real person who's trapped inside a puppet's body and is just really trying to make some sort of connection and is completely prevented from doing that because uh, he's just a very pathetic, uh, selfish person. Mm. I, I mean, if that sounds like a bummer, listeners, that's because this movie is a bummer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's a big bummer. But I think there's some value in in really letting yourself um, enter that perspective and understand what a horror it is and be so much more thankful for the fact that we are not trapped in the same uh, hell that Michael Stone is.
1: Yeah, and that I think is the place where like I'm struggling the most with this movie because I do think that it is – I think it is good and also I did not like it. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> and I, I am struggling to come to grips, I think, with the pieces that I did not like because part of them feel to me like they're kind of – a piece of a whole, and a lot of it has to do with the thread of self-loathing that I feel kind of permeates a lot of Charlie Kaufman's work in particular, and I have a sneaking suspicion I'm just not on this guy's wavelength probably, but in this one it felt so strongly distilled that like I could feel my spine sort of tense up (laughs) (laughs) as I was watching it, and I was frankly kind of grateful that it was over even though it was only a 90-minute movie. It's an incredible work of art and I, I don't know, I don't know, I, I just have a really hard time spending so much time behind the eyes of this one particularly very miserable character and kind of being inured into his view of the world because I could sort of start to feel myself seeing the world the same way that he did mm-hmm. at a certain point and I didn't like how that made me feel. <laughs> For one. And I don't know what exactly I got out of that experience necessarily.
0: So uh, let let me say that, first of all, I totally sympathize with that viewpoint. Uh, You know, I I I have that a lot with David Lynch, actually, where Mm. I I very much appreciate what Lynch does in his films. Um, but I often come away from them feeling like I've just been punished for something that I didn't do. <laughs> um, and, and a lot of it is... Um, Lynch and Kaufman are both so good at situating you in kind of this experience that uh, it is very artistically commendable and impressive, and it is also sometimes very, very unpleasant. Mm-hmm. So I, I totally uh sympathize because I, I have the same thing. So when people talk about David Lodge I'm like, he's great. I don't like a lot of his films. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't like watching them. I don't like the experience of sitting down with them. Mm. Um so that said, my my defense for this particular film that, you know, in, in front of us is the saving grace of this film is Lisa herself. Mm. Um Jennifer Jason Lee's voice work is so good in this film um you know lisa herself she is also carries her own weight of uh self-loathing mm-hmm. she um is introduced to us kind of over and over when we first meet her she talks about how she thinks she's ugly she's unremarkable she's she says that she's not very smart um so she's obviously got carries a lot of that weight herself but whereas michael is just a miserable man who makes the people around him miserable. Lisa is sort of a ray of hope in this film because by the end of the film, she does kind of grow as a person. She grows out of, uh, some of the, the self loathing and misery, uh, that she had at the beginning of the film and Mm. the connection that she forms with Michael, however, uh, however unhealthy and sinful it might be. It's part of, that's partly responsible for sort of bringing her her out of that funk a little bit and showing her that there's a whole world out there mm. beyond just her own neuroses. And because the movie ends on her rather than on him. Mm-hmm. Uh that's kind of where I I feel like the the film is more than just an exercise in pure miserabilism.
1: Mhm. Yeah, and I I totally agree with you about that ending because it is very <laughs> Very good. It's very needed. It, it was, oh my gosh, I, I was going to be very upset if it did, I think, and with Michael and purely in his point of view. Um, I take a little bit of issue with the character of Lisa, kind of the same way that I take issue with a lot of the other women in this movie. And maybe this is just how extreme the unreliable narrator-ness of Michael is. But every single woman in this movie is introduced as feeling extremely insecure about how she looks and how she presents herself to the world. Like, that's the first thing you hear from the ex that he calls up when he first arrives at the conference. It's the first thing that you hear from Lisa as well. Like, she talks about, oh, I just took my makeup off. Don't look at me. I'm ugly. And that's kind of a litany that's sort of repeated amongst all of these other women. And maybe maybe that is just how Michael thinks that he sees these particular women – but there's also that thread of sort of self-loathing, I think, there too, that also feels a little bit external to Michael. And that just, that rubbed me the wrong way, um, purely because it felt like it was treating all of the female characters as being a little bit more shallow than this very admittedly like miserable man <laughs> who is miserable like to the depths of his very soul. Like His, his misery is very deep and kind of profound in a way, um, but also... It feels like he's kind of infecting all of these other characters around him in a way that I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily quite true to the world. I know that art isn't supposed to always be true to the world, mm-hmm. but it's something that def- definitely did rub me the wrong way.
0: I I mean, I think that you're onto something there when you say that the insecurity of the the women characters in this film is probably a function of the fact that – Just everything is shot through with the same beige tones because it's this is Michael's world. Mm -hmm. Um so that said, watching it this second time, this is the second time I've seen it, because to be fair, it is kind of a bummer, and I haven't (laughs) been always in a in a hurry to revisit it. Um so this is only my second viewing after having seen it the first time back in 2015. But the watching it the second time, I was struck by the intensity of lisa's uh lack of self-worth the the way that she talks about herself is is not so much insecure as self-hating i guess Mm. and i can definitely appreciate that being just just a little (laughs) just a little too too much almost as if coffin's just laying it on a little bit too thick where she didn't necessarily need to be that much of a uh, of a of an insecure person for this story to to be told in the way it is. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there there might be something there in in that critique, but I I think again, just if we're really going to exact a full look at the worst, if we are going to tell a story um, where we see somebody who has the opportunity to be thankful for all the good that he has. I mean, Michael is a he's a successful speaker, he's a successful author. He's rich enough to be traveling around and staying at fancy hotels. Mm-hmm. He has a a wife and a son who who care about him. Um he's uh you know, he, he all the women uh he meets to, uh see him as physically attractive. That's mm-hmm. something that is brought up multiple times. Um, And even as he's walking around, um, you and the sound makes you hear other people say, that's Michael Stone. That's Michael Stone. Mm -hmm. And he's so he's famous enough that he's being recognized wherever he goes. Hmm. And yet all of those things he takes as a curse. Like there's something he's so attached to his own misery that even the good things make it even more bitter for him Hmm. (laughs) and the the fact that people recognize him is oppressive rather than kind of oh some something that he can be happy that he's that has that level of success
1: it's funny because i kind of read that almost as narcissism like more of that unreliable narrator piece like he thinks everybody is looking at him but maybe that isn't actually the case so Hmm. that, that that was the read that i got from that Maybe I'm being too hard on Michael Stone, but I don't know. This guy's really <laughs> inviting that.
0: I mean, I and and I'm I'm actually want to talk about Michael Stone a little bit because yeah. we've hit it really hard that he is a miserable, selfish person. Mm-hmm. He's making the people around him miserable. He's no fun to be around. He's even less fun to spend time inside his brain space. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm curious to know while watching this film, did you find Did you hate him? Like, did you dislike him? And that because he is a very dislikable character Mm -hmm. um, or did Kaufman succeed in like, did he did he fail by making Michael just so repellent that you just want him to go away? Or did he succeed in at least making him compelling or inviting of some sort of sympathy?
1: I pitied him. And I think I saw some of the worst tendencies of myself in him. So I think that he succeeded, honestly. Um, so I I didn't actively hate him, but I was relieved to be out of his head, if that makes sense. So I, I do think that Kaufman is extremely successful in what he sets out to do in this movie. <laughs> it's just that I... Did not enjoy it at
0: all. <laughs> Successful at at making a, a an experience that you're not anxious to have again.
1: Yeah, no, I mean it made me anxious. Um, <laughs> I'm just not anxious to have it again necessarily. I kind of want to talk a little bit about like the pieces that I appreciated like the most, though, which, which is kind of the artistry and actually the cinematography because it's very very good here, and I, I think that it does a good job of of kind of driving home both what it's like to live in in this guy's head. And also kind of recognizes that there is a world outside of his head, I think. Um, So, shoot, sorry. I had it written down and I wrote too small. So um, Joe Passarelli is the cinematographer and he's actually doing a lot of stuff with some really interesting, really long shots. Which I know are possible to do in stop motion probably more than like actual physical shooting. But I was still struck by... The level of like time and attention and care that was taken into making sure that everything was completely and perfectly steady and kind of boring and at the same time kind of fascinating to look at. Like I kept searching the corners um, of all of the different frames and I kept coming back to in Michael's uh, hotel room. A lot of the shots are framed so that we're facing back towards the door of the hotel room. And he's usually like sitting on the bed or standing kind of parallel in profile. And you can really tell what he's thinking. And he's he's talking aloud to himself. And the door to the hallway is kind of just a little bit left of center. And it's black. Like it's a black hole. And I, I think I can see that almost as being his... Fear of the outside, fear of other people, fear of connection, maybe. Um, but it was a detail that I kept noticing and coming back to. And I don't really have, like, anything else too profound to say about it other than, like, that dark door, I think, was one of the scarier things that I saw in this movie.
0: <laughs> the pr- I, I love the production design in this film. And a lot of it is just the way the Hotel Fragioli mm-hmm. is laid out and shot. The... Uh, the thing that popped out to me—I hadn't noticed that thing about the uh, the door being just kind of this this black hole. Mm-hmm. The thing that I find so striking about about this uh, this hotel are the corridors. Just how the the doors to all these different hotel rooms seems to, to stretch on forever, and the you know there are regular there are ceiling lights placed at regular intervals, and just Michael walking down those hallways looks like a man. You know, walking towards his o like walking down uh, an endless road at at the end of which uh is just oblivion if hmm. you can never get there, it's just like this in, this infinite slog, <laughs> and it's I, again, if that sounds like a bummer, yes,
1: you're really selling this movie honestly. i I mean
0: I'm sure that there are just tons of listeners out there just you know immediately going to their to their Amazon prime accounts and like, i gotta watch this rent. <laughs> pause the podcast I'll I'll finish the the episode after I watch this really fun movie <laughs> but uh, uh, all of these these little details I think do add up to create an experience that's more that's more than just sort of watching a sad person be sad for an hour and a half and then at the end of the movie he's going to continue being sad <laughs> yeah. and that's and that's all there is I think there's it takes talent to make something boring and uh and or ugly uh interesting to look at mm-hmm. and i think uh the cinematography the direction the production design all really succeed in doing that
1: did you get a sense of i don't know interiority from any of the other characters besides michael stone cuz I, I i i keep I keep looking for that piece and oh, I couldn't man. quite full, fully get there.
0: 100%. Um, I think the the character of his ex is very interesting to me because mm-hmm. she's the the first non-Michael character we see on screen. He, so the, the film opens, he's on an airplane, he's reading a letter that she wrote him mm-hmm. when they first broke up a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a telling character detail himself that he still has that and still reads it. Um, but then we see her kind of super imposed over the image of the letter you know reading out her words um where she's obviously just in such pain over the selfish way in which he ended their relationship Mm. and um uh, noonan's voice work is is so interesting because he's able to even though he's voicing a cast of thousands Um, He manages to find specificity in each of the characters and this X when we eventually see her in the flesh Michael invites her over to the hotel hoping to maybe get a little bit of adultery in because he's just that terrible Um, and and, but the, the the exchange they have where she's obviously still carrying a lot of emotional pain for him and yet she's not just going to let him use her to. You know, make his life a little bit less dull for a while. She's still there's still a, a an ember of self respect that she has, and I, I I don't know I found I found that uh to make her a compelling character for the little amount of time that we actually get with her.
1: Hmm. I think this is making me respect her a little bit more as well, <laughs> because again, like most of what I got from the movie was kind of his colored view of her, where there's just that level of self loathing and. Um, I think the first thing that she says to him after he calls her up is like, um, like, don't basically don't look at me. I think I've put on weight, like, but not bad. But also don't judge me for any of this. It just keeps coming. I keep coming (laughs) back to that piece because that that just does not feel. I don't know. it, It feels uncharitable in a way that makes sense coming from Michael Stone's head, but it doesn't quite jive At least I hope it doesn't jive with, like, the rest of the world outside of it. And I just... I I have a really hard time squaring that circle.
0: Hmm. And there's probably a limit to how often you can pull the ripcord on the unreliable narrator parachute. Mm -hmm. Um, So, that's fair. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the the way that these stop-motion puppets are constructed. Yes. Because, so... Uh, first of all, the the hotel at which they're all staying is the Hotel Frigjoli, which is a reference to Frigjoli's disease, which is this uh, persistent delusion that the love the friends and loved ones that you have around you are not actually your friends and loved ones, but people who are disguised as your friends and loved ones. And these puppets are all constructed in a way where their faces are the 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 seams are very obvious. Kaufman makes no attempt to hide it. Mm-hmm. And at one point, at at various points the uh the face plates of these puppets uh either move around or pop off to reveal kind of the the puppetry underneath mm-hmm. um so i'm i'm curious to know kind of what you what you made of that and what you see as Kaufman what 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 is Kaufman saying about people obviously because you know some of this is all in michael's head but mm-hmm. michael himself also has those seams in his face and uh, so I'm I'm curious to know what you see as the, the vision of humanity, not from Michael, but from Kaufman with I, this movie.
1: I mean, I, I still read it just as how he sees the world and how he sees himself, where he kind of sees everybody else as being interchangeable and he's still a little bit unique. Um I almost wish that there had been a little bit more done with those face plates. Like I'm glad that there's there's some touches to it and there's there's that moment where part of like his mouth sort of falls off. And maybe this is kind of my frustration with the movie as a whole is being so deeply like mired in his head that you don't get to do quite as much with the medium of stop motion. There's an incredible dream sequence mm-hmm. where everything that Michael hopes for and fears sort of starts to happen all at once where he, he ends up going down to the basement of the hotel to be confronted by the manager and the manager confesses his love for Michael. And then everybody else proceeds to do the same. And they kind of chase him and Lisa down this darkening hallway back towards that same dark hotel room where he's been sort of hiding behind this entire time. And there were some flourishes in there that felt like they were something that could really only ever happen in a stop motion feature. And I kind of it made me wish that I wasn't watching watching something that was so beige and so regular. <laughs> and at the same time, like, I don't know how you tell this story without this particular medium. So, again, it's that it's that internal friction against the self-loathing and against the reliable narrator and just me bumping up against it. The problem is probably with me, but I do have a very big problem with this movie. <laughs> I,
0: you know, again, I I don't necessarily blame you. I, I, I mean, do do you think that the do you think the film is? funny at all because it does it does have some at least i find some thre- threads of humor that kind of also help the bitter medicine go down a little bit easier did were you on the the humor wavelength of this film at all? i was
1: completely like dead silent the entire time oh. like, did not laugh did e. not find any of it funny like it, it was really a tough sit honestly <laughs> the
0: final nail in the coffin yeah oh man well uh i i'm sorry to have afflicted you with with that but all good uh, that that is the way the the stop motion cookie crumbles um so listeners that's our review of anomalisa if we haven't already sold it to you by now <laughs> uh you can always go out it, it is available to uh stream on demand on amazon prime i believe maybe some other uh platforms as well so you can check it out there if you've seen this film and uh, have some thoughts to share uh, about whether you find it just an interminable sit, or whether you actually, you know, a- a- agree with your your humble host and actually think that it's a tough sit, but it's also kind of great. Mm-hmm. Uh, let us know. You can always email or tweet us uh, at those addresses that we mentioned earlier. Uh, next week, we're, we're things are looking up a little bit, though. Like we'll have a little bit more fun on next week's watch list segment.
1: Depends on how bleak you find uh, summer movie tent poles. Um... Well, yeah. yeah. We will be watching Jurassic World Dominion. Mm-hmm. And then uh, to pair with that, scientists spent so much time considering whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think about whether or not they should. We're going to be pairing Jurassic World with the 1931 Frankenstein. Kevin, I'm so excited to show this movie to the you.
0: The original film about man's sci- mankind's scientific hubris I'm all about it, and I'm excited to see it. I, I feel like I'm getting a crash course in classic monster movies from you, and i it's a big blind spot, so I'm looking forward to filling them in.
1: And also, I just love Boris Karloff, so I'm going to make everybody watch every Boris Karloff movie ever.
0: Well, hopefully, listeners, we can make you watch this uh, movie as well so that you can you know, uh, follow along with the discussion. I'm looking forward to catching up with it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, that is uh, this week's episode. Hopefully, you have, you're not currently in a tailspin of <laughs> of just you know depression uh, over anomaly so hopefully we help you pull out of it somewhat seeing and believing is brought to you by the christ and pop culture podcast network our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen i'm your host kevin mcclinathan my co-host is sarah welch larson and we'll see you next week on seeing and believing